and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week we began the study of Ephesians by reading the whole letter in its entirety. Uh, if you weren't here, my reason for doing that was simply because when these letters were initially received, um, that's the way that they were received, as they were read aloud in the congregation. And I thought, huh, I wonder if we're missing some of the blessing that God intended to us uh, by not doing that, because that's not the norm for us. And so, if that's the way that God initially intended for His Holy Spirit-inspired document to be heard uh, or to be received, then, then maybe we should continue to do that. Of course, I have no doubt that they would analyze it and study it and, and break it apart and dive into it, uh, teach through it in smaller portions like we do, but the first thing they did was they read through it in the congregation so we did that last week, and, and I don't know about you, but I thought it was so good that I did it a number of other times last week. I uh, met with a group Sunday nights. We read through Colossians. Um, Tiffany and I read through Colossians another time. I personally read through the, a couple Psalms, and even out loud, I just find for myself I'm able to retain things uh, and, and follow the flow of what's being communicated differently. So I hope it's... I hope it was helpful to you, and, and uh, it certainly has been to me. Jeremy Toombs said to me after class, he said, you finally preached the perfect sermon. Uh, and I, you know, I thought that was pretty good, and uh, it's true. Everything coming out of my mouth was Scripture. And, you know, I don't mean to diminish the uh, role of preaching and teaching. Uh, it's a gift to the church and something that we hold very highly and seriously around here. But, we, I mean, we do need to break it down. We do need to dive in. We do need to think more deeply about the truth uh, and, and apply it to our lives. But I'm glad we did the other. And uh, when we get to um, another book one day, then maybe we'll do the same thing. No, we will do the same thing. Uh, all right, Ephesians, all the way back to the beginning. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, follow as I read the first half of verse 1. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Amen. Um, I told you last week that Ephesians is an epistle, which basically means that it's a formal letter. And these biblical epistles followed the structure of the formal letters of uh, the, the Greek and Roman culture at, in their day. Uh, they were written differently than we might write a formal letter. Most notably, the author signed his name first. So Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament epistles, uh, and all of them started the same way. Paul. So I thought we could start by simply saying, who is this Paul? Um, we talk about him a lot. We read a lot of his stuff. But uh, many of you know that Paul was once Saul. The change is recorded in Acts 13, uh, verse 9. It says, Saul, who was also called Paul. And before this, he was being called Saul. Even for a while after he had become a Christian, he's a Christian at this point in Acts 13, 9. And after this point in Acts 13.9, he is known as Paul, except in a couple places where uh, he was telling his testimony and he would refer to his former life calling himself Saul. So I was wondering, what's the significance of the name change? Uh, it's really pretty simple. Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul his Greek name. So basically, um, 
Saul started being known as Paul when he and Barnabas were sent out uh, to the Gentiles uh, to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, Paul was born and raised a Jew, Hebrew-speaking Jew, and he was known as Saul, his Hebrew name. Um, He became a Christian. He began his ministry uh, after a while in in Israel and in some of the surrounding areas. Of course, the early church was mostly Jews, and so he was still known by his Hebrew name, uh, even in the beginning of his ministry. But there was this point in Acts 13 where Saul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church to go and focus specifically on spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. And in another place, Paul would call himself the apostle of the, to the Gentiles. Um, you know, others like Peter were going to stay and focus on spreading the gospel to the Jews. But that's when the name change is noted, when they're commissioned to go and spread the gospel to the Gentiles. So the significance of the name change is simply that Paul would be spending the rest of his life among Greek-speaking Gentiles, and he was from then on known as Paul. Is there any equivalency between the two names? Essentially the same name in two languages. Yeah, so... um, One of the fruits of that labor in Gentile land is... The letter or the church in Ephesus, uh, whose letter we are beginning to study now. Um, you know, so much could be said about Paul. I printed this off. This is from the ESV Study Bible. If you're interested in a study Bible and you don't know which one to get, the ESV Study Bible is really good. Y'all can pass that around. Um, and uh, if you ever want to do a study on the life of Paul, that that'd be a good guide. Obviously, we can't go through all of it. Um, so let's look at his conversion. Turn to Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> Before we read <clears throat> Acts chapter 9, I'll tell you a little bit of the context. Uh, the Holy Spirit had come and filled the believers at Pentecost, and from then on, the church is growing like crazy. Every day, it says in the beginning of Acts that the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Every day. Of course, the religious leaders in their day didn't like this because it was a threat to their power and their glory. Um, And so in Acts chapter 6, we see that the church was growing and uh, it was growing rapidly and there were more and more people in need. You know, as the church assembles, there's more and more people in need. Uh, and, and just like anything else, if it grows real fast, you have a hard time keeping up with the growth. So those who were responsible for preaching the Word did not want to give up that responsibility because they understood the significance of communicating God's Word to His people, but they did want to take good care of those in need, like widows um, and, and other people. So they appointed certain men at this time in Acts 6 to specifically focus in the area of service to those in need in the church. This is where later the office of deacon would come from. Um, you know, we, we don't have the office of deacon here because we think that those in need are being taken care of by our people. Uh, but that's where it comes from is this, this point in Acts 6. One of these men that was appointed for this work was Stephen. Um, if you're in Acts, you can turn over to Acts 6. And in Acts 6, 5, it says he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, uh, full of grace and power, 6, 8. And he was doing great signs and wonders among the people. Well, certain religious leaders didn't really like this. So they rose up to uh, dispute with Stephen. 
you know, to argue with them and, and call them out or whatever. That's in Acts 6 9. And let's pick up there, um, starting in verse 10 of, of Acts. Again, we're getting our context for the life of the Apostle Paul, his conversion, uh, starting in verse 10 of Acts 6. But they could not, that's the religious leaders, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, which, with which Stephen was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face, Stephen's face, was like the face of an angel. So uh, these religious leaders, they don't like the influence that the Christians are having because more and more people are following them. And specifically at this time, they don't like Stephen. So they take him to the higher-ups, the council it says, you know, the higher-ups in the, in the Jewish tradition, and, um, and they tell lies about him to, to ultimately try to get him killed. Well, Stephen takes advantage of being in front of the higher-ups and everybody else who's obviously drawn into all the commotion. And in Acts 7, he gives a powerful, faithful, evangelistic speech that ultimately ends up getting him killed. Um, we'll pick up at the end of that speech, at the end of Acts chapter 7. I, I'd recommend going and reading that speech this week, um, but we'll start at the end of Acts 7 uh, in verse 51, and we'll read through 8.3. Stephen says, this is his close, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen... He, Stephen, called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Pretty awesome there. Uh, 8.1 And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here we find Paul, this time known as Saul. He was present at the stoning of Stephen, 
uh, people are laying their coats and things at his feet so that they have free hands to go pick up stones to kill Stephen. And he obviously had some authority uh, because it says in 8.1 that he approved Stephen's execution. He gave the nod, uh, the okay. And then we see he's going in Christians' homes like a madman and he's carrying men and women off to prison. So there's Saul, there's our context for his conversion, which we find in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what Christians were known as in the beginning, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So there's a lot we can learn uh, from Paul's testimony. But I'll just say this. If anybody thinks you've done too much for God to love you, or if you think you're too messed up, um, or you've repeatedly uh, gone against God and His ways too much for Him to use you, look at Paul. He openly hated Jesus and His people to the point that He was having Christians killed. It makes sense why He was so passionate about communicating the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, throughout His ministry. Because He lived it. He experienced it. Paul was saved and transformed by the grace of God in Christ. That same God whose same grace has been given to you and me to save us and transform us. All of us, like Paul, were 
spiritually blind, uh, born that way, and, and, and spiritually dead in our sins, in rebellion against God and His ways. But God, by His grace in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, has overpowered our rebellion to save us and to transform us. And even if you were saved when you were little, don't think you don't have a good testimony. You're a dead, blind sinner that was destined for destruction, and God poured out, poured out His grace on you to bring you to faith in Christ in order that you might be saved. So whether you were killing Christians or, or disobeying your parents when you were three, you were headed for damnation until God poured out His grace on you. There is perhaps no more glorious statement of God's grace at work in salvation than in the book of Ephesians, uh, particularly in chapters 1 through 3. Ephesians breaks up pretty easily into two main categories, what has been called the indicatives and the imperatives. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3 are the indicatives, indicating what God has done for us in, in our salvation in Christ. It's all about God's work, Uh, and and we are just simply passive recipients of God's work and salvation. And then chapters 4 through 6, following that, is about what we should do in response to this. Okay, God has lavished us with His grace. What should we now do? Um, That's chapters 4 through 6, the imperatives. I'll say this about chapters 1 through 3. For some of you, it's going to be very challenging um, we're going to be talking about things that, are, that you're not immediately comfortable with. And it really won't take us very long. You get to verse 5 and it says, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about things that you may not presently believe. You may have been taught not to believe. Things like predestination. My challenge to you is this. Ask God to prepare your heart and mind and to reveal to your heart and mind what the truth of His Word is. I know one pastor in Knoxville that a friend of mine went to his church and he was teaching through Ephesians and he got all the way to verse 5 in chapter 1 and he said, well, this is controversial. We're going to skip it because we want to be peacemakers. And uh, I thought, well, number one, that's really a bad understanding of what it means to be a peacemaker. But number two, we ain't skipping it. Uh, Paul didn't skip it, and more than that, God thought it was important enough that He put it in His Word. We need to understand it. So, I'm simply asking you to ask God to prepare your heart and mind for His truth. You really don't need to know what I think about these passages. Um, You need to know what God meant when He used Paul to write His Word. Back to Paul... Um, There are a lot of great things we could say about Paul after conversion. I'll just say that from conversion on, Paul was a man on fire. He relentlessly pursued his commission to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. He endured incredible suffering uh, for the sake of Christ and His church. He was used by God to start and establish a lot of churches. He was used by God to write a significant portion of the New Testament... Uh, He was easily the greatest missionary that has ever lived. There are a lot of great things that we can say about Paul. Some really don't do justice, but Paul himself would give you one word that summed up the significance of his life, and that word is apostle. 
uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You know, Dennis Wright and Steve Austell spoke at our men's breakfast yesterday, and, and earlier this week I called them to, to get some information about what I should say about them uh, to introduce them. And if Paul were speaking at our next men's breakfast and I called him and asked him how I should introduce him, uh, he would say something to the effect of, tell them that I am Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You know, some might think Paul is arrogant for always going back to this. Mr. Big Shot Apostle, Paul really thinks he's something. Uh, But actually, though this term does carry the the utmost authority uh, in the church, it also is a declaration by Paul of his submission to the Lord Jesus and and Jesus' will for Paul's life. In its most basic form, uh, the apostle, apostle means appointed messenger or sent one. Um, and in that sense, it's used in very, on various occasions in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 3, it's used uh, talking about Jesus, that he, in the sense that He was sent by God the Father uh, into the world you know, to save the world. It's also used in the sense of believers that are sent out by a congregation. Uh, in that sense, apostle and missionary kind of mean the same thing, the, the sent one. Um, But here in Ephesians 1 and everywhere else where Paul would use it at the beginning of his letter to introduce himself, um, it's being used of the particular office of apostle in the church. And apart from from Jesus, uh, there is no higher office than the apostolic office. In order to understand, um, you you think about where we are at this time in in Paul's life uh, at in redemptive history, uh, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He and at that point, the work of the church was really just beginning. He appeared to the twelve. He gives them the great commission: uh, go and make disciples of all nations. He appeared to more than five hundred people. Paul says in in First Corinthians fifteen. You know, he ate some dinner with some folks to let them know it was really him and he was really alive. And uh, then he ascended back to heaven. And uh, he gets back to heaven. He sends. He and the Father send the Spirit to fill the believers at Pentecost, uh, and essentially to begin to apply what He accomplished on the cross. So from that point on, the church is being built. Um, also, think about the fact that they didn't have a Bible packaged all nice and neat at that point. Uh, the New Testament scriptures had not been written down yet. They were being written at that time in real time, like in. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So we take for granted that we have our Bibles packaged all nice and neat, and and most of us really don't struggle with the fact that the Bible is our authority for faith and life, sent from God, His Holy Word, to to guide and lead, and and it's our sole authority. But they didn't have the New Testament yet, so how do they know what's true and what's not? How How does the early church know who to listen to and who not to listen to? Jesus-appointed apostles. They were His sent messengers, His authorized representatives that carried His Word to the church. So when our country's at war and the commander-in-chief has the the say of what's about to happen, uh, you can imagine that he's in a little room and he communicates that Word to a few people and then they go out and communicate that Word to other people. And it's really the same idea. Jesus appointed a few men, such as the twelve disciples that lived with Him for three years, also called apostles, like Peter, James, and John, uh, those guys, Matthew, 
Um, also included in this group of apostles is Paul. He would later call himself one untimely born because he was not in that original group. But he is indeed an apostle. And the role of these men was to get the divine message from Jesus and give it to the church. They were vehicles of God's divine revelation. They carried the Bible in their hearts and minds. They wrote it down for our instruction uh, and for the church's instruction in all ages. They had the utmost authority in the church, uh, an authority that was given by Christ Himself. They were commissioned by Christ for this particular office, appointed for the task of carrying the oral and written Word of God to the church. They spoke the very words of God, just like the prophets in the Old Testament. They were carried along by the Spirit in order to write the very words of God as black words on a white page. One important thing to know about this uh, office is that it's not an ongoing office in the church. Um, We'll see that when we get into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 talks about, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, the most important piece. Uh, The whole structure cannot be built without the cornerstone. Um, Without it being set, the structure just doesn't work. But He appointed other men to to lay the foundation, to be the foundation of the church. And there's only one foundation. It got laid at one particular point in history through the apostles and and prophets. So are there still apostles and prophets today? No, not in the sense of this. Uh, Not in the sense like Paul and Peter and James and John and Matthew and those guys. Because... They were used to bring the Word of God to the church. They laid the foundation. We're built on the foundation. There's only one foundation. Um, There's not ongoing revelation in this sense. The Bible is not still being written. There are not other things that God is saying now that are equal to what is in the Bible. It is God's Word that was given uh, through the, the prophets. This is the major fundamental problem with Roman Catholicism where they say that what the... Pope says, and what the church, essentially what the church says is on par with uh, the Scriptures. That's not true, um, but the, the, it's a misunderstanding of this apostolic office and, and what God was doing at this particular time through His chosen people. Um, this is also the fundamental problem with the Mormons. They uh, added later revelation. They believed that God continued to appoint His instruments to, to continue to bring revelation um, to the church. The, ra- the reality is there's only one divine authority for God's people. It's an authority higher than the church, uh, higher than what the church would say, and that is God's Word. In order to give His Word to His church, Jesus appointed specific men at a specific time in history for the purpose of carrying His divine revelation to the church. But that time's over. The foundation has been laid. The Word has been established. Uh, God is no longer speaking to men in the same way that He spoke to Paul in order to give him the message of Ephesians. Jesus is no longer communicating with people like He communicated with John to write the Gospel of John and the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. 
Um, and that should be abundantly clear by the last thing that Jesus said to John in Revelation. You don't have to turn there. We're out of time. But um, it says... I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things uh, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So, after this message that he gave to John on the island of Patmos, the book of Revelation... He no longer speaks His divine Word in the same way that He did through these appointed instruments. You can imagine Paul sitting, writing to the church at Ephesus, and he is divinely inspired. The Holy Spirit is writing this letter through the pen of Paul. That doesn't mean that God doesn't speak anymore. Um, That doesn't mean that He doesn't guide and lead our thoughts anymore. He does. But not in the same way that He did with the apostles. Not in the same way that he spoke and led, uh, spoke through and led Moses and David and, and all the prophets of the Old Testament. God continues to speak to us through what He spoke to them, uh, which is which we have in His Word. So, uh, and, and God does continue to guide and lead our thoughts, but God <coughs> guiding and leading our thoughts is not equal to His Word. God guiding and leading Paul's thoughts was God writing His Word. So as we set out uh, to close, as we set out to study the letter of Ephesians, and really for the the whole Bible in in itself, but but right now we're studying Ephesians, as we set out to study it, we need to understand that this is Jesus' message through His Apostle. This is Jesus' message to us. This is no no less the Word of God than the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking to us uh, through his chosen instrument, and um, you know, as we get to these hard passages, the temptation is, oh, that's just Paul. We need to get back to the red letters. No, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was an instrument of divine revelation. Paul gave us God's word. I know it's a lot to think about, um, but we have to understand, and and this. When you start reading Paul's letters, Paul, an apostle, there's great significance uh, in in that word, particularly apostle. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is, uh, in many ways, beyond us how in Your great and perfect wisdom You arranged for it to come to us. We do take it for granted. We thank You for the security that we have in resting under the authority of Your Word, Lord. And I pray that You would open its truth to our hearts and minds. Uh, Do establish us in the faith that we are being taught, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.